Happy Father's Day, everybody. Good to see you. We're in the home stretch of our series in the Ten Commandments. And today we're going to be looking at the Ninth Commandment. But before we jump into looking at it, I think it's worth noting each time we look at the Ten Commandments to um, hear once again what the purpose of the Ten Commandments are, what the purpose of God's law in general are. Let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now after verse 2 right here, we have the list of the Ten Commandments. But it's so important to note what verse 2 is showing us. Verse 2 shows us that before God gave his people the Ten Commandments, he saved them first, right? That's what verse 2 is telling us. I'm the Lord your, Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so he saves his people first out of slavery, out of Egypt. The order and the sequence is absolutely critical here. God doesn't come to the Israelites while they were slaves in Egypt, and he doesn't give the... the give them the Ten Commandments, and he doesn't say, here are my laws, here are my commands, if you obey, then I will save you. God doesn't do that. He saves them first out of grace, and it's a parallel to our salvation story. We don't earn our salvation through obedience. God saves us by grace alone. As Christians, we don't obey so that God will save us. We obey because God saved us, and his commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. Not keeping God's commandments are burdensome. You guys hear that? His commandments are not burdensome. Not keeping his commandments are burdensome. All the burdens that we have in our lives, all the anxiety, all the pain, all the stress, the bulk of it comes from us not keeping God's commandments. His commandments are given to us to show us how we ought to flourish most, how life works best. Because he created us, he knows what will enable us to live a life that flourishes most. Because he created life and designed life, he knows how life works best. That's the purpose of God's commandments. And then we have the ninth commandment today in verse 16, which says, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. What does this mean? If you grew up in church, you learned this commandment as thou shalt not lie, right? Thou shalt not lie. But what does it mean? You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The most immediate context for this commandment is in a court of law. It's dealing with the situation in which you have to give a legal testimony under oath in trial, and it's saying that when you have to do that, make sure you don't lie, but you tell the truth. And what we have to understand about the justice system at this time was that it was before the age of forensic science, right? And so empirical evidence either had little weight or wasn't really even taken into account at all. The outcome of the case was heavily dependent upon witness, right, upon testimonies. And so as you can imagine, the justice system could be heavily influenced by wrongful accusers, a group of people who decided they don't like so-and-so, and so they make a wrongful accusation. They lie in their testimony in order to put that person either in jail or even worse, put that person under the penalty of death. And isn't this exactly what happened to Jesus? 
No one could be found that could justly accuse him of crimes. And so the Jewish leaders of the day, the Pharisees, they had to find false accusers that would lie in order to put Jesus to death. And so what does all of this have to do with us? Telling the truth in court. Is that what this commandment is all about? Do we keep this commandment by simply committing, okay, if we're ever called into court, I promise I'll tell the truth. Is that what this commandment is getting at? One helpful way to think about particularly the last six commandments, the first four commandments deal with how we ought to relate with God, right? And the last six commandments deal with how we ought to relate with each other. One helpful way to think about the last six commandments is that each commandment deals with, addresses a particular category of life, okay? Some theologians have said that these commandments are rules of categories, rules of categories. And so, when God says something like, do not murder, right? One of the categories that he's addressing is the category of power. How do we use our power? And the commandment, do not murder, is showing us the most destructive way that we can use our power in murdering. And so the way that we keep this command isn't when we simply do not murder. We keep this command when we use our power to serve one another, right? Even be willing to lay down our power, lay down our lives in order to protect another. That's how we keep this commandment. The commandment do not steal, what's it addressing? It's addressing the category of money and possessions. And it's saying that the most destructive way that we can deal with our money and possession is by stealing. And so we obey this command not when we just don't steal, but when we're generous. As Paul says, he who steals must steal no longer, but must work in order that he may have something to give, in order that he may have something to contribute. And so he's saying what repentance from stealing looks like, what not stealing, what keeping this commandment looks like, not when somebody just stops stealing, right, but does a complete 180 and starts working in order to give, in order to be generous and contribute. That's what the keeping of that commandment looks like. And so the commandment, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. What category of life is it addressing? It's addressing the category of our words. It's addressing the category of our speech. And it's saying that the most destructive way that we can use our words is if we're even willing to lie in court to put somebody in jail or put somebody to death. But it's really addressing the entire category of our words. How do you use your words? How do you use your speech? In order to tell the truth, in order to lie, in order to build up somebody, or in order to tear down somebody. Proverbs 12, 19 says, truthful lips endure forever. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Matthew 12, 36 through 37. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. And James 3 tells us that the tongue is like a rudder on a great ship, right? Though it's just a small piece, though it's just a small member, it has the power to steer the entire ship into destruction, it says. And so is our tongue. It can set the entire course of our life in ruin. 
That's what the tongue, our language, our words have the power to do. All throughout the Bible, what God is showing us is that our words, they count. What we say, it counts. What we don't say, it matters. And how we use our words, it matters. They matter and our God sits in judgment over our words, right? The text just says we have to give an account for every careless word we've ever spoken. That's a scary verse, right? Why does he do that? Why does he care so much about our words? Because God loves words. Because God loves words. He's the God of words. The first act of God's mercy towards us was that he spoke. You and I sit here today because God decided to speak. All of creation exists today because God decided to speak. We know God today because he decided to speak. He's the God of words and because he is the God of truth. And think about this. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? He says he is the truth. That truth isn't just something that he speaks, but that he is truth. That truth is a person. And concerning the Holy Spirit, what does the Bible say? That he is the spirit of truth. And so truth is a Trinitarian identity. It's who God is. It's who he is. And because of that, when Paul begins to describe what Christians are going to look like in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, Christians, you're no longer going to look like this, but you're going to look like this. Literally, the very first thing that he says, what Christians are going to look like, is that we're going to be a people who put off falsehood and start telling the truth. No longer lie, but we speak the truth. That in its essentially, what it means to be a Christian is to be truth-tellers. That one of the distinguishing marks of how do you know that you've been saved is you don't lie anymore. You start telling the truth. And so let's look at these two things, lies and truth. What are the ways that we lie? Where did lying even come from, right? Why do we lie? And then how can we become a people of the truth? And so lying. What are some ways that we do this? What are some ways that we lie? I googled. Most common lies people tell. You know what the number one lie was? Number one lie that we tell is, I have read and agreed to the above terms and conditions. <laughs> it's the number one lie. On another side, it said, I don't lie, was the number one lie that we tell. Number two was, I'm fine, combined with number five, I'm sick. Both of which, when we say it, we, we mean the same thing. It basically means leave me alone, right? Or it means please pursue me. Somebody talk to me, depending on the person that you are. I'm a leave me alone person. <laughs> Number six was I'll be there in five minutes. <laughs> Followed by sorry I forgot. You know, when I say I'm sorry, most of the time what I really mean is get over it. <laughs> and when I say I forgot, what I really mean is I blew you off but don't hold me accountable. Another one that should have been on the list is the crying laughing emoticon. Seriously, you're not crying laughing. <laughs> you're not. Why are you saying that? And so these are all lies that I'm sure we've all told, lies that we regularly tell that seem trivial and it doesn't seem like a big deal. And so we tell these so-called harmless lies that seem inconsequential. But our relationship with lying, it doesn't stop there. Some other ways that we lie, we lie by not lying. We lie by technically not lying. Technically, what you're saying is true. Technically, what you're saying really did happen, but in that context, but in that order, you're not telling the whole truth and you know it. 
We lie by giving deceptive partial, partial truths, by exaggerating, by twisting the truth. We lie by omitting details. We lie just as much by what we don't say than by what we do say. We lie just as much by what we don't say than by what we do say, or we just lie blatantly altogether. So all the lying that we do, where does it come from? Where did it come from? The first lie that entered into human history was not a lie that we told, but a lie that we believed. The first lie that you and I came into contact with was not a lie that we told, but a lie that we believed that happened in the beginning, in the garden. God created everything, the sun, the moon, the stars. He created every tree and its plant for food. And he says in Genesis 2, 16 through 17, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So what does God say? He says you can eat from any tree, right? You could have it all except this one fruit. But then Satan comes along in the form of a serpent and he says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And, and look at this craftiness. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Notice the craftiness. He asked, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say you can't eat anything? No, what God said was you could eat everything. It's all for you except this one fruit, right? But Satan twists God's word. He twists and turns God's truth. And he says, so God said you can't eat anything, huh? The first lie in human history was a lie that came from Satan, a lie that filled Adam and Eve's heart to believe that God was withholding good things from them and that the only way that they're going to be happy, that the only way that they're going to be truly satisfied is by not trusting God but by taking life into their own hands. That's the lie that we still believe today, don't we? Right? All of God's laws, all of God's commandments, the lie that we believe is if I keep that commandment, I'll be missing out. If I keep that commandment, I just can't be happy. I can't trust God. I have to take, right? The first lie in human history came from Satan. And so Jesus calls him the father of lies. That's why he calls him the father of lies. And when you and I lie, though we are created in God's image, we become displayers of Satan's image. As God's people, when we lie, we're displaying what Paul says is our old self. We're displaying what we used to be, not what we are currently in Christ Jesus. Okay, so we see where lying comes from. It came from Satan, the father of lies. But if we fell into that lie and it brought such destruction, if it brought such havoc, then why do we lie? Right? If we believe that lie and it brought such destruction, then why do we lie? Isn't that a lesson we should have learned? Why do we lie? Why does it seem like sometimes we uncontrollably lie every day? What's ultimately the reason for why we tell our lies from the small, seemingly inconsequential ones to the big destructive ones? Let's go back to the garden, Genesis 3, 6 through 7. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. 
Their eyes were opened, it says. Their disobedience caused them to have a new consciousness of their nakedness. They realized that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. God comes in the garden in the cool of the day, as he usually does, to walk with man. He says, Adam, where are you? Let's go for a walk. And Adam says, uh, I can't. I'm naked. But Adam, you've always been naked, right? Genesis 2.25 tells us that before the lie, the man and his wife were naked and unashamed. So what happened? You see, before they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, okay, that's what the Bible says happened. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Before they did that, even though they were naked, they felt clothed, clothed with God's love, clothed with God's provision, unashamed and secure. But when they threw away God's truth for Satan's lie, they lost that covering of security. And with this covering gone, they felt naked. Before they felt no shame, there was nothing to hide. They could be completely vulnerable before one another, and yet there was complete safety. There was a desire to be known and the satisfaction of being fully known and loved. This was the condition before lie came into our lives. There was, there was the satisfaction of being fully known. Everything there's about, there is to know about me, you know, and you still love me. There was the satisfaction of that, but now there was this sense of guilt. We all feel it, don't we? A sense that there's something deeply wrong with me, a sense of shame a sense that there's something I need to cover up, a sense that there's things about me I just can't let you know. Now the thought of being fully known is absolutely frightening. God created us to want to be known, to desire to be known. But now the thought of being fully known is absolutely frightening. What if your spouse, a friend, or a family member learned how, how you really are, the secret thoughts that run through your mind every day? What would they think of you? What if you were an open book just for one day and everything you spoke out, every thought that you crossed your mind, what would people think? Would they love you or would they want nothing to do with you? The clothing of God's truth, his acceptance, his glory and purity is what enabled them to stand before any eyes without shame, without any guilt. We were built to be known to be known and loved, but now we think the only way that we can be loved is if we're not fully known. You see, we think the only way that somebody could truly love us is if we're not fully known. We think that the only way we can be loved is if we present an edited version of ourselves. You think it's impossible for anyone to know the depths of who you really are and love you. And so you play the hiding game, the covering game. How do we do that? We do that by lying. Lies are the fig leaves that we have sown for ourselves. Every time we lie, those are the fig leaves that we use to cover and hide. So if we're late for a meeting, we often say, sorry, the traffic was terrible, right? But this is Austin. Traffic is always terrible. We don't say, sorry, I slept late. We don't say, sorry, I got in a fight with my wife. No, we shift or we blame or twist not to be seen, right? Well, the traffic was bad. And this happens on social media all the time. We post the best, the happiest pictures possible. You're on vacation, it's all smiles, sun, and laughter. We don't post the honest ones, right? You're on vacation, you got in a fight with your wife about money, and you don't say, honey, let's stop, let's take a picture. <laughs> got to post this one, right? Kids are whining, crying, throwing things. Let's take a picture, guys. 
right? Now, it could just be a picture of happy kids, and that's great, but it could also be a fig leaf. You're trying to say, see, we're great. Kids are great. Marriage is great. Everything's amazing, right? When in fact it's not. There's conflict. There's pain. There's sin. There's brokenness, and you're just trying to cover it up with a cool filter. That's why we lie. All the, all the lies that we tell every day, big or small, is an attempt at covering our nakedness, our inadequacies, trying desperately not to be found out, trying desperately not to be exposed, lying without even noticing, lying without being able to keep track, frantically trying to tell ourselves and trying to tell others that everything's okay and it's not as bad as we think. Okay, so truth is the solution, right? Isn't that the solution? Don't lie anymore, just tell the truth, right? But here's the problem with truth. Truth by itself is never good news for us. Truth by itself will always expose us and reveal the true condition of our hearts. If God was the God of truth only, if the way that our God would deal with us is only with truth, you and I, when we face him on judgment day, this is the truth that he would say to us. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. So do you see, truth by itself will always expose us for the fraud that we are. It will always crush us for the sinners that we are. That's why we run from the truth. That's why we lie all the time, because truth by itself, we sense that it will expose us. But the good news is, God is not the God of truth only. He's also the God of love. Truth by itself condemned us, and so what could he do? As we've talked about before, God loves words, and his words have power, unbelievable power. And, it could, and he could just say things like, let there be light, and there was light. Right? He could just say, let there be, and, and there is. But there was one thing that he couldn't just say, let there be. He couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness. You guys think about that? There's one thing he couldn't just say, let there be. He couldn't just say, let there be forgiveness, because he's the God of truth, because he's the God of justice and righteousness. He couldn't just say, it's okay, no problem, your sin's not a big deal, I forgive you anyways. God's character would not allow that. In that sense, he couldn't just love us. In that, in that sense, love by itself couldn't help us. He couldn't just say, I forgive you. He had to do something absolutely incredible if he was going to keep truth and love together. Do you guys see? Truth by itself couldn't help us. In a very real way, love by itself couldn't help us. And so God, who is the God of both truth and love, he had to do something absolutely incredible to keep truth and love together. You know, our greatest fear, the reason why we lie every day is because we're so afraid that we're, we'll be exposed and the truth will come out. But in a very real way, your greatest nightmare already happened. You guys know that? Our greatest nightmare already happened. You've already been exposed by the only one whose judgment really counts. You've already been exposed as a liar, as a murderer, adulterer, and a thief. 
There's nothing that you can hide from God's eyes. Romans 3 says you're not righteous. You don't understand. You don't seek God and you've turned away from him. The most damning truths about us has already been exposed by the one whose judgment counts, truly counts. And so the God of the universe sees you as you truly are. That's the bad news. He sees you as you truly are. There's no hiding or covering up. He sees through all your lies and seeing you as you truly are, this is what he did, Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, seeing us as we truly are, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the good news. This is truth demonstrated in love. This is truth and love coming together that sets us free from being liars. We don't have to try to cover ourselves with lies anymore because we've already been covered by the blood of Jesus. You don't have to walk around in fear that you'll be exposed because you know that you've already been exposed but still loved. You thought it would be impossible for anyone to know you as you truly are and still love you and God proved you wrong. He knows the depths of who you are. The ugliness he knows about us is so much more than we even know about ourselves. He was under no delusion. He knew you. I mean, truly knew you, and he loved you still, even at a great cost to himself. And so we can finally take the fig leaf of lying off because he clothed us with, with Jesus. And so the solution is found when truth and love are joined together. God tells us in Ephesians 4.15, to speak the truth, right? But not just that. He doesn't just say speak the truth. He says to speak the truth in love, right? The goal isn't just to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love. And that's what precisely the ninth commandment is saying. It's saying don't bear false witness against your neighbor. On the one hand, it says speak what is true. Don't bear false witness. But on the other hand, it's saying the whole purpose of the truth is to be for your neighbor, not against them. God's command to us in the ninth commandment isn't simply telling us to tell the truth. It's saying tell the truth in love. Why? Because that's what he did. Because that's what he did. To great lengths he went to keep truth and love together, and we need to do the same. And so, what are some ways that we can speak the truth and love to one another? One way is through confession. One way is through confession. By confessing our sins to one another. The word confession literally means to say the same thing as God. To agree with him. And so what would God say about the situation? What would he say? How would he, what would he say is going on? Say it like that. When we don't live in a habit of confessing our sins to one another, we're lying. We're, we're lying because we're presenting ourselves to be better than we really are. And we think of all sorts of justification for not confessing. Earlier on in our marriage, I refused to confess to Angela that I had looked at pornography. I just refused. And the justification that I was using was my love for her. It'll hurt her too much. I'm just trying to protect her. It's my sin. I'll just deal with it. I'll fix it. But what was, I, what was I doing? I was trying to keep love and truth separate from one another, right? And so I was, I was not speaking the truth in love. And at the same time, not only was I lying, I was robbing. I was robbing Angela of an opportunity to forgive me. Because forgiving, 
Telling somebody, I forgive you, is another way that we can speak the truth and love to one another. And when finally God moved in my heart to where I just couldn't get away from him, right? Some of you know what that feels like. And, and I finally confessed to Angela, it was the most liberating thing. I felt like, that's the only way I could describe it, liberation. And for the very first time, I saw, I felt why the psalmist says, oh God, how I love your law, right? Because when you actually start keeping God's commandments, you feel this incredible freedom and liberation. You feel how life is meant to be lived, not keeping things secret, but let, letting yourself being known and receiving forgiveness from people. It was one of the best things that happened in our marriage because it was one of the most tangible ways that I could show Angela that her husband was a sinner in need of a savior and that if our marriage was going to make it, that it had to be built not on my righteousness, not on her righteousness. It had to be built on the gospel. It had to be built on Christ's righteousness. We're finally free to confess our sins to one another, not fearing what so-and-so is going to think about us. Because however bad you think I am when I confess this sin to you, I'm actually worse. I'm actually worse. I don't have to fear, oh, they're going to think I'm this bad. No, I don't have to fear that because the Bible tells me I'm actually worse. I'm so bad that somebody had to die for me. I'm so bad that Jesus had to go to the cross for me. That's how bad I am. And so I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to hide myself. I can just tell you that I'm a sinner. And these are the ways that I've sinned against you and just ask you for forgiveness. And you don't have to be held hostage by whether somebody forgives you or not. Why? Because Jesus himself has forgiven you. And if they belong to Jesus, either they'll forgive you right away, right, because they've been forgiven by Jesus, or they'll catch up. Or they'll catch up. God will work in their life too, not just yours. Another way that we need to speak the truth and love is through confrontation. Not just through confession, but also confrontation. Sometimes sin needs to be confronted. Now, I know some of you are like, you know, I got this one down, right? Christians are more than willing to tell it like it is sometimes. But remember, the command is to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth with gentleness. Some of you are calling out people, right? But are you doing it in love? Are you doing it in gentleness? But I would think the bigger problem with confrontation that we have is there's a cowardice about us. You want people's approval, you want so-and-so to like you so much that you just end up flattering them and boosting their ego, never loving them enough to tell them hard things. Never loving them enough to tell them hard truths. Another way, keeping your promises is another way of speaking the truth in love. Jesus said in Matthew 5, he says, don't make oaths, don't make promises, but simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. What does he mean? He's saying become so accountable to your words, right, that you don't have to go to the lengths of making promises in order to get people to believe you, right? You're so loose with your words, you say you're going to do this and that and they don't believe you. And so you have to say, well, I promise, right? That's the only hope that you have in getting people to believe you. Say yes and mean yes. Say no and mean no. For instance, when we say, I'll pray for you, right? Christians, we say this all the time. And when did I'll pray for you become just a nice thing we say to one another instead of it being a promise? When we tell somebody I'll pray for you, we're making a promise. We're saying I will go into God's throne room for you and intercede on your behalf. 
When it comes to prayer, it's not the thought that counts. It doesn't count unless you actually pray. It doesn't count unless you actually intercede for them on their behalf. Keep your promises. And we can really go on and on, but the one more way we can speak the truth in love is by sharing the gospel. By sharing the gospel. Because why? The gospel is the ultimate display of truth and love coming together, right? God has saved you through the gospel. If you're in Christ here today, God saved you through the gospel. And not only that, he's sanctifying you through the gospel. Think about all the ways that you've changed by the gospel. You're so much more kind now, right? In a very real way, you're so much more kind now. You're so much more forgiving. You're so much more loving. You're so much more generous. And, and here's the thing. When we don't share the gospel, when we don't share the gospel, we're lying. Why? Because you're saying that you're the way that you are because of you. Okay? All the ways that God has sanctified you and made you better in a real way, when you don't share the gospel with people, you're lying because you're saying, I am the way that I am because of me, because of my power, because of my self-discipline, because I'm a good person, not because somebody named Jesus came into my life while I was a sinner and he saved me and he changed me. We're lying to one another when we don't share the gospel. We're presenting ourselves to be better than we really are. We're presenting ourselves to be people that don't need a savior. That's why even when we do share the gospel, people don't believe us, right? That's why when we, when we share the gospel, people find it so offensive. You're telling them they're a sinner that needs Jesus, but in no way have you communicated to them honestly all the ways that you fail every day why you need a savior. And how Jesus has come into your life and saved you and changed you. As we talked about before, when we lie, we're still holding on to our old selves, trying to cover our nakedness with the fig leaf of lies. And we're displaying the image of Satan, the father of lies. But Christians, you have a new father now. You have a new father now. You have a father of truth and love. And so when we speak the truth and love to one another, we're displaying God's image. We're reminding the world and each other of who God is and what he's done. And so when we confess our sins to one another, we're reminding each other the truth of the gospel, that we no longer have to cover ourselves. We've been covered by the cross. When we confront sins in each other's eyes, we're telling each other of what Jesus did. That while we were sinners, he didn't sit comfortably in the heavens, leaving us to ourselves. But he entered into our world. He entered into our brokenness. He did the hard thing to confront us of our sins. When we keep our promises to one another, we're telling the world about God's word. That we have a God who does not lie. That we have a God who cannot lie. That we have a God who speaks truth right? That we have a God that we could wholeheartedly trust. Why? Because he's a God who keeps his promises. When we speak the truth and love to one another, we're imaging God to the world. We're displaying who he is and what he's done. And so Christians, no more fig leaves needed. No more fig leaves needed. You've already been covered with the clothing of Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you guilty. Your word has acted as a mirror once again to show us what we look like. Your truth has acted once again to show us 
that we are guilty of being liars, that we still try to hold on to our old selves, and, and every day we image Satan to this world. But Father, we thank you that knowing all these things, you still demonstrated your love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while all these things were declared as true over our lives, you still sent your son to the cross for us. And so now, though we are exposed by your truth, we have been covered by your love. And so, Father, in light of that, let us be people who are courageous to tell the truth to one another and who love each other enough to tell the truth to one another in love. That because we serve a God who went to great extents to keep truth and love together, that we do the same. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this great gospel. In Jesus' name we pray.